a place hopefully where your soul will be refreshed this morning. First Peter chapter 2, we want to go back to verse 9 to begin with this morning. We're doing a series on Sunday morning in First Peter, and we want to begin at First Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Appreciate our worship this morning, appreciate Dave opening us up. Uh, just something else to mention about uh, Stephen's resurrection seminar. Because there is lunch provided, we need to know a head count so that we know how much food to plan for. So beginning today, the sign-up sheet for that seminar is out there on the welcome table as you came in. Uh, please sign up if you're planning on coming and if you're planning on bringing somebody with you. Find out as quickly as possible if you know they can come and bring them along with you. Uh, but make sure that you sign up. And then don't forget, I mentioned this last week, the first Sunday of April, April the 7th, is not only our grand opening, it is our ninth anniversary as a church. And there are postcards out there also on the information table that you can take with you to hand out to invite people to come with you for our grand opening on April the 7th. So we hope you'll avail yourselves of those things. Last week... Peter wanted to talk to us about the priorities of God's people. And we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2 last week, uh, and even at the end of chapter 1, that there are three priorities that Peter pointed out to us. There is the Word of God, there is the worship of God, and there is the witness of God. Today I want to take off on that last point, the witness of God, because that's what Peter wants to talk to us about from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 3, the first seven verses that talk about husbands and wives. Whether it's the most intimate of human relationships, our spouses or other family members, or whether it is someone that you and I might only come in contact with once in our lifetime, God calls us to be witnesses. And what does it mean to be a witness. We as Christians hear a lot about that term, witnessing and being a witness. What does it actually mean? Well, notice last week in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, these words. Peter says to God's people, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that, purpose, you and I may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God wants his people to know who we are in him so that we can proclaim him. The word proclaim means to publish him. Literally, it was used to also speak about advertising in Paul's day, in Peter's day, in Bible times. In other words, you and I, from God's perspective, are to be a living advertisement of God to everyone we meet, everywhere we go, and in every one of life's situations. People are to see God in us. Because notice, it is not to proclaim our virtues. It is to proclaim, publish, advertise the virtues of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, let's talk for just a second about what witnessing is not. You see, witnessing is not 
counting up all the people, in a sense, and putting a notch on my belt that you and I have maybe led to the Lord over our lifetime. Because first of all, we can't save anybody anyway. Only God can save a soul. Um, you and I can't even change some other human being's heart. Only God can do that. So when it comes to witnessing, you and I should not put any pressure on ourselves as far as the results or the response of others. You and I, from God's perspective, could be a great witness, a very faithful, effective witness, and yet never have one person around us come to know God or change their heart toward God. Because that's not up to us. All God asks of his witnesses is that people can see him in us. Well, that should free us all up. Because, you know, we live in a results-oriented world where it's, it's got to, you know, you, you got to see the effects. You got to see the results, right? When it comes to witnessing, you and I never have to put pressure on ourselves to bring other people to the Lord or to change the hearts of other people. That's up to God. One can plant, one can water, God gives the increase. And only God can do it. But what God does expect of his church, of his people, is that people can see him in us. That's what witnessing is, you see. Can others see God in us? A question we should always ask ourselves as a church and as individuals is, how much of God do others see? And again, God makes no exceptions about who it is that is watching and observing our lives and in what situation, whether it be a, a favorable situation in life or a very hard, difficult situation in life. In fact, I would submit that many times our most effective witness, if you will, for God comes when you and I as his followers are going through difficult times. Because anybody can sort of be on top of their game, if you will, and be filled with joy and peace and all these wonderful things if everything in my life circumstantially is going well, but when things aren't going well. And only through God, you and I can live at a supernatural level. That's when we really stick out, if you will. That's when we are really distinct from everyone else because people are thinking, this person's attitude should be in the tank right now, and they got a smile on their face. What explains that? And that's when you and I have opportunity, as Peter's going to say later to us, to give them an answer for the hope that is in us. It's not us, it's God in us. And what you're seeing is not me, you're seeing God in me. So today what I want to do is Peter then, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, down through chapter 3, verse 7, reminds us of some of the things, some of the, the parts of God's nature that others can and should see in us each and every day. The first one I would like to share is his love. People should see God's love in us every day. In fact, he starts out in chapter 2, verse 11, by addressing us as dear friends. It's a Greek word that means beloved dearly or divinely loved ones. In other words, 
Every day we should wake up going, my goodness, the reality that God loves me, you see. I am loved by God, and I have received that love, and I am receiving that love. Have you received the love of God so that others can see God's love in you and through you? You want to talk about love, look at verse 24 of chapter 2, where Peter writes, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. That's love. That Jesus took our place on the cross and bore our sins so that we would never have to experience any kind of judgment at all because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And because of Christ's love for us, you and I are set free. We are forgiven. We are accepted in the beloved. We are loved, my friends. And the cross of Christ always reminds us of that, that we are loved. Jesus even said, and there's no greater love than this, that one would lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus did that and calls upon us to do it as well, to be, again, a demonstration of his love in our lives every day. Several weeks ago, I shared these verses that Jesus taught his followers, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And by that kind of love, the kind of love that I loved you with when you start loving others, that kind of love will show all men that you're my disciples. Because there's going to be a distinctiveness to that kind of love. It is that supernatural, agape, self-sacrificial, selfless love, you see. And that kind of love is something that others should see in us every day. The love that you and I have for God, because that's the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, your neighbor is just whoever's near. <laughs> whoever's near, whether it be a family member that you live with every day, or a person, again, that you might only come in contact with once in your lifetime, but at that point, you're near them, they should see God's love in us. The world and other Christians, other churches should see the love of God in this church. They should feel it. They should see it. They should sense it. That's how you and I proclaim the virtues of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. First of all, by others seeing his love in our lives every day. Second, his hope. Notice in verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul. Foreigners and exiles, meaning that, again, this earth is not my home. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We even should be praying as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That this earth is just a place we are temporarily passing through and residing, but our hope is on what God has promised us in the future. And we should live with and in that hope every day. Christ in you, Paul says, the hope of glory, you see. 
That's why over in chapter 1, the first week we looked at this great letter from Peter, he writes in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his mercy, he gave us new birth into a living, alive, everyday hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, into an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is reserved in heaven for you. That's our hope. That's why we live every day not putting everything into our earthly existence, but living for eternity, as Jesus says, laying up treasure in heaven. That's our hope. You see, people should see that for us every day, as a church and as individuals, this earth isn't all we're living for. In fact, we're living more for the life to come than the life now, which is why Paul could say, Living is Christ, dying is what? Gain. In other words, the best is yet to come, and that's the hope that you and I should be alive in every day. As a Christian, no matter where I'm at in my earthly life, I can always say, the best is yet to come. I haven't experienced the best that God has for me yet. It's always still out there. And that one day when you and I see Jesus face to face and we are in glory, then Paul said, I reckon that the present sufferings of this world aren't even going to be worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us one day. That's our hope. And we should be a people of hope that live in that hope and have that living hope coming out of us every day. Because we live in a hopeless world. We live in a world where most people think this is all there is. And when this earth and this world goes in the tank for them, they go there too because they have nothing to look forward to and no guarantee of getting there. But through Jesus Christ, you and I can live so much differently than that. And God wants his people to proclaim the virtue not only of his love but of his hope to all those that we come in contact with. Which is why even back up in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, maintain good conduct among the non-Christians. Well, first of all, that means we're among non-Christians, which sort of shuts down the whole philosophy of a lot of Christians of isolating themselves from non-Christians. How can non-Christians see the virtues of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light if we're never around non-Christians, if we hide our light? Which is why Jesus said, let your light shine. Don't only be around them. Don't be like them, but be around them. And let them see my light in you, you see. Do they see his love? Do they see his hope? Do they see next his grace? Look at verses 19 and 20 of 1 Peter chapter 2. For this finds God's favor. The original language word there for favor is grace. This finds God's grace. If because of conscience toward God, someone endures hardships and suffering unjustly, for what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it, but if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor or grace with God. Here's what Peter is saying. First of all, he's writing to a group of Christians who are going through extreme hardship right now, persecution and pain in their life. 
And they're probably questioning, God, why? Why are you allowing your people to go through such hardship and pain and difficulty? And, and one of the things that Peter is saying is because even in these difficult times, you can be such a powerful witness and show them how great God is that no matter what the circumstances of our life, God can still shine through. In fact, may even shine more brightly through our lives in difficult circumstances than when everything's going well. And that even in the darkest of days, they should be able to see his love for us and his hope for us because circumstances don't change those things. No matter what circumstances or life situations you are going through, you and I wake up loved by God every day. And my Bible tells me in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And you and I, no matter what life situation and circumstance we are going through, we can wake up every day with our living hope burning very much alive because, again, our hope the confidence of what is yet to come that is always better than anything we are experiencing now is not based on our circumstances here on earth. And then Peter says to his readers and to us, oh, and by the way, when we are going through hardships, his favor is there, his grace is there. And they should be able to see that you and I can navigate even the hardest of times on earth, not because we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and somehow suck it up, you know, or as they say, fake it till you make it type of thing. No, 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 as a Christian, I learned to lean in and rely upon God's supernatural empowerment and enablement, which is what his grace is, and be able to know that his grace, as the Bible teaches me, is absolutely sufficient. Is that not what Paul learned through his thorn in the flesh? When God said, I'm not going to take the thorn in the flesh away, but I'm going to show you that my grace is sufficient even to keep your thorn in the flesh. That's why Paul later wrote, by the grace of God, I am what I am, 1 Corinthians 15, 10 by God's grace. And when you and I realize the grace of God, no wonder there's been so many amazing songs about God's amazing grace. Wonderful grace, amazing grace. You know, you, you go on and on. So many people have just been overwhelmed by God's grace in their life, especially when it shows up at times that you and I could never get through those times on our own, or at least do it well. But then God's grace comes in we find his favor is there resting on us inside of us to allow us to navigate the most difficult circumstances because of his grace not because the circumstances change for the better but because his grace enables you and i to do it you see and we learn the sufficiency of his grace and that's something that, again, others should see in us every day is not only his love and his hope, but his grace, his supernatural enablement and empowerment to, to help us and support us to live in a way we could never live without him or on our own. 
That's why over in chapter 3, verse 7, when Peter is addressing husbands and wives, he reminds them if they are both saved and Christian, that we are heirs together of the grace of life, meaning that first of all, that's why Christians should obey the word of God and only marry a, a, a fellow Christian, a fellow believer, because if you find yourself in a marriage or any other partnership in life where one of you is a Christian, and the other is not, then you understand that the one can live at a different level than the other because the one has the ability to tap into God's grace and the one without Christ does not. That makes it really hard. But when both are Christians, both can tap in and be inheritors of the grace of living and that God can give grace not only to husbands and wives but to 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 family members and friends and partners and collaborators and all of these different things so that every day you and I can exist at a higher level than we ever could simply by doing it in the strength that we can muster up. Grace. Do others see love and hope and God's grace in us and then his authority? Oh, this is so important. His authority. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. <clears throat> Even when Jesus was suffering himself, it says he committed himself to God who judges justly. In other words, even the Lord of glory who could have called a legion of angels to come and rescue him, could have rescued himself, could have with one breath wiped out everyone around him and not had to go through the suffering and pain and rejection that he did. But the Bible says as an example to us, an example that Peter says, you and I, verse 21, should always follow in his steps, Jesus committed himself to his father which is why he said even from the cross father into your hands I commit my spirit because I know that you are the authority and I'm going to live under your authority God so when you and I learn like Jesus did by his example to live under God's authority that means you and I can live under any other authority and we'll be able to navigate it because we understand we're not really submitting to that human authority or that human institution. Ultimately, we understand that God is in charge of everything. He rules and reigns, and therefore I can willingly put myself under anything or anyone because I know ultimately God's in control. Wow, do we live that way? His authority. That's why then in these passages, notice how often Peter writes these words. Go back up to verse 13. Be subject to every, not some human institutions, every human institution for the Lord's sake so that people can see his authority in us. Now think about that. Human institutions, they're messed up, right? Human institutions are run by humans. That makes them tough to begin with, right? They're broken. 
And yet God tells his people, you place yourself, because submission is never something that comes at us from the outside to be forced on us. Submission to anything is when you and I as a Christian acknowledge his authority in the universe by being able to place ourselves under other authority because we know ultimately God's in control. And here's, a, here's a, I'll just say it because I'm speaking to myself. You know, we can go around easily saying, I know God rules and I know he's on the throne. I know he's in control. And yet how often do we want to take control ourselves of our own lives and what we place ourselves under because we really don't trust that God really is on the throne and in control. So therefore, we have real hard times placing ourselves as Christians under any human institution, much less every human institution. It doesn't mean we shouldn't work to make things better, but even in Peter's day, let's not forget that many of these Christians were under these wicked Roman emperors and under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. God didn't say, oh, wait until I overthrow the Roman Empire and make everything all comfy cozy for you, then you submit. No, he said, submit now. Because ultimately, I'm in control of the Roman Empire and every ruler of the Roman Empire. Doesn't matter who it is. Just as he told his people in Egypt, I'm over Pharaoh in Egypt. There's a reason why you and I submit, so that others can see his authority in our lives, that we are acknowledging his authority. Look at verse 18. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all reverence, not only to those that are good and gentle, but also to those who are perverse. How can I do that? By recognizing ultimately God's in control. Your employer or your master or the person over you in, in authority over you humanly, if you're a Christian, you realize it's not really them that's over me. It's God who's over me. It's God. And if I acknowledge his authority every day, then I can place myself under any other authority because I'm not trusting in that human authority. I'm trusting in my God and his authority. And my Bible tells me that the king's heart is even in the hand of the Lord. If we really believe that as Christians, then others will see his authority in our life, that we are willing to do that and even go through you know, putting ourselves and allowing ourselves to stay in hard, sometimes difficult circumstances and not leave those circumstances until God releases us from those circumstances because maybe God wants those around us every day in school, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are, to see God in us. That may be why God wants you there. Not because he's making you comfortable, but because he's using your life and my life so that others can see God in and through us. Which is why in chapter 3, he talks to husbands and wives about submitting to one another. Why? How can I do that? We'll go over to chapter 3, verse 22. We're going to go ahead of ourselves here a little bit. He's talking here about Jesus Christ, and here's what he says about Jesus after his resurrection. Jesus, 
went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. In other words, everything is under Jesus Christ's authority in the universe. Therefore, if I as a Christian truly place myself under his authority and there is no authority higher than his, then I can place myself under any human and every human institution. I can place myself under any boss or person that I work with or work for. Not going to bother me any because I know ultimately God's in control. God may want me there going through difficult circumstances so that other people can see God in me and maybe come to know God. I as a spouse can place myself under my spouse. Not because, you know, they're the greatest thing in the world necessarily all the time, but so they or other family members can see God in me, his authority. Do we truly believe Jesus Christ is the authority of the universe? Then if so, that means you and I should be able to place ourselves in any situation under any other human authority knowing that ultimately God's in control of me and you. He's got us. And he may have us in difficult circumstances for a reason much bigger than ourselves. Which is why, again, as Christians, we, we can become so self-centered that even as Christians, we go through some situation in life and automatically one of our first responses is, God, why me? Well, it may not have anything to do with us. <laughs> it may not have anything to do with us. But that's how we look at life. God, why are you allowing me to go through a difficult circumstance? Well, maybe God wants you and I and trusts us enough to be in that enduring hardship situation so that when they begin to see his love and his hope and his grace and his authority in my life, maybe they will be drawn to him. Did we ever think of it from that perspective? Another thing that people should see in us is his goodness. His goodness. Look back at chapter 2, verses 12 and 15 and 20. Maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that though they malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds that come from his goodness operating in our lives and glorify God when he appears. Verse 15, for God wants you to silence, literally shut the mouths of the ignorance of foolish people by doing what? By doing good, by exhibiting God's goodness every day. Verse 20, for what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it, but if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. Over and over. Paul even said to Christians, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not faint or give up. Doing good. Doing good comes from God's goodness flowing out of us to others. That's what doing good is. We think of doing good many times as being good, but it's more about letting the goodness of God that we have experienced flow out of us every day. That's his goodness. 
doing good. Again, doing good doesn't make us a Christian. Believing in Jesus Christ is what makes you and I a Christian. Having faith in Him as our personal Savior. But after we are saved, people should see His goodness in our lives every day as we do good. Not only when they do good to us, but simply because that's who we are. Because that's who God is. Do others see God in us? Self-control. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a moment. Look at verse 23. Speaking of Jesus. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation. Throughout my life, for a long period of my life, even as a Christian, I thought witnessing had more to do with what I say. You know, we witness for God by talking to other people about God. But I submit to you again, based upon the words of Peter right here, that we can also do as much witnessing for God by not saying things at certain times than by saying things. Sometimes the greatest witness we can be is by keeping our mouth shut like Jesus did. And can I say that's especially important for you and I in the world in which we live, where because of social media and all that, it's almost like we've created a culture of people that we've gotten sucked into. It's almost like everybody feels like they need to comment about everything. And, and everybody needs to hear what my opinion is about such and such. And the Lord of glory who could have spoke a word and literally vacuumed everybody off the planet, went like that as he was being hurt, as the crown of thorns was being placed on his head, as the nails were being driven in his side and in his wrist. He kept his mouth shut. What a, no wonder the centurion said, truly, this man must be the Son of God. Not simply because of what Jesus said. And there's times where we need to speak up and we need to say things about God and for God. But there's also times where some of the greatest witnessing we can do is when we have self-control over our tongues, as James says in chapter 3, and where we put a guard over our lips and where we absolutely say nothing and we resist the temptation to have to say something every time. I know, I'm not getting a lot of amens out of that one. Oh, yeah. Hey, we're keeping our mouth shut on that one. <laughs> so I'll move on to one more. Witnessing is about others seeing God in us. His love, his hope, his grace, his authority, his goodness, his self-control. One more, his patience. Where do I see patience manifested in this passage today? We'll go back up with me to verse 12. The word maintain means time. Consistency over time. Maintain good conduct among the non-Christians now so that in time, though they malign you now, in the present, as wrongdoers, they will 
come, hopefully, to a place where they see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. The whole verse is all about an investment of time and being patient and being able to every day live my life in a consistent way. It's not going to be a one and done. Most times when God even does use our lives to change people's hearts or draw them to Christ, it's not a one-time experience. Usually it's over, the long, over a long period of time. And you and I then, in our witnessing, we have to be patient. Because you and I, if we even think about ourselves, do we change overnight? Do, do the attitudes of, of our heart and our, I mean, do we automatically go from, you know, point A in our life to point M somewhere down in the middle? Of that? No. It's hard for us to change. It's hard for others to change, too. And it may take time, which means you and I have to exhibit the patience of God in our witnessing and know that it could be a long investment of time and effort on our part to allow God to use our lives. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? That's a time word. But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. You and I only endure, persevere, when things are drawn out and there's a long period of time. And God is saying, I may ask you to endure something and be patient because it's going to take time for me to use your life, no matter how committed you are to me, to break down the walls and the barriers and the gunk and stuff in their life to where they can begin to see the difference that is in our lives. One other one over in the passage on husbands and wives in chapter 3, verse 1 Peter uses the phrase to wives that if you are living with disobedient husbands, they may over time be won over. The phrase won over speaks about a time investment. It might take time. It may never happen, but if at all, it's going to take time, even those living close together to see that over time, that consistent conduct of seeing God's love and His hope and His grace and His authority and His goodness and His self-control and His patience. Patience. And by the way, I'm sure you've seen this even probably quicker than I did. But when you go back through these seven things we've talked about today, most of them also are duplicated in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, right? In Galatians chapter 5. Because these are all evidences that the Spirit of God lives within me and that I'm not living this life in my own power and strength, but I am being filled with the Spirit every day, allowing the fruit of the Spirit to flow out of my life so that others can see that God truly is in me and lives in me. That's what witnessing is. And that's why God 
builds his churches like the oasis. So hopefully as we come together and we make the word of God a priority and the worship of God a priority, that then the witness of God will be such that others will clearly see in our church him, not us, him. And then as we go out from our places of worship, that every day, no matter where we are, no matter who we come in contact with, again, whether it's a family member that I see and interact with every day of my life, or whether it's a human being that I will see once and never see again, that that one interaction I have with them, they can see that there's a difference in me. Through my attitude, through the way I carry myself, through the way I interact with others, through the way I speak with others, through the things I don't say. Because that's what witnessing is. Witnessing, going back to chapter 2, verse 9, is really about proclaiming the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One thing in closing. The word proclaim not only means to publish or to herald or to advertise, it also means to praise and celebrate. That goes back to our worship. That we live every day praising and celebrating the virtues of God. That's what we seek to do here at the Oasis, and that's what we should be doing every day in our own lives as well, is praising and celebrating His virtues so that we can see those virtues begin to build into our lives so that others can see us as well. Let's stand in prayer. God, I pray today that each one of us might have gotten a little bit of a clearer understanding about what it means to be a witness for, for you. That witnessing God isn't about how many people we necessarily personally led to the Lord in our lifetime. Because first of all, we can't save anybody, only you can. Or how many hearts were changed, because we can't change those hearts, only you can. And it also means, God, we don't have to live with the pressure every day of the results, because you, you don't put that on us. All you ask of your church and your people every day is, can others around us see you in us? And so, God, I pray today that as a church and as individuals, we would be as committed as ever to just allowing your Holy Spirit to be in control of our lives at each and every moment, and no matter whether it's the people who are closest to us or people that we might only see once in our lifetime, that they may say, see clearly you in us. God, that is the greatest life we could ever live, is others seeing you in us. May that be our heart's desire today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.